You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, everybody. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with me as we dive into the next week of teaching at the bridge. Finished up our series on the letters, which was great fun. Eight weeks on Revelation 1, 2, and 3. And took a week kind of as a side and talked about why we pray together. Why even do that? It seems um, seems hard for some people, seems uh, awkward. And so I gave five reasons why people find it hard, and then five reasons why we just got to do it anyway, because it's important. Now, in the message you're going to hear, I tell a story and I get a detail wrong, and it bugs me because I don't like that. Uh, I tell a story and I reference Lou Engle's son, Samuel. And truthfully, the individual who said what I attribute to Samuel Engle was Samuel Hood as a young boy. So if uh, if you were there and you go, well, that's not how that happened, I know that's not how that happened. The, the overall gist of the story is dead on, but that one detail I got wrong, and it bugs me, but I can't go back and fix it. There it is. There's your disclaimer. Here you go from Sunday at the Bridge, why we pray together. In between series, like we just came out of this long series on the letters, eight weeks on just a couple of chapters, I like to take a a week and kind of do a little housekeeping and and talk a little bit about us and what's important to us. A lot of times during those series, people have jumped in and they don't know really what they've jumped into. And so this is kind of one of those weeks where I want to talk about uh, something that's very important to the nature of the bridge and that uh, we may do maybe differently than maybe uh, we've done in the past because we want to make it a priority. Last week, we took a few minutes and we spent some time in corporate prayer for the unborn and the court case before the U.S. Supreme Court. And for some, that idea of praying together is a little different. That, that just feels a little herky-jerky and it's never quite as smooth as we hope and boy, that's a little odd. And uh, especially on a Sunday morning when time is limited, why do we take time to pray together? Largely in our culture, the idea of a church service and corporate prayer have been separated, and we don't put those two things together. But praying together has always been a major part of the bridge DNA before we were a worship service, before we were a teaching service, started as a prayer meeting. Like that's what we did at the beginning. We added teaching, we added worship to that. And so I don't want to lose that piece of who we are. I don't want to get too far away from the fact that at our core, we're a prayer gathering and we teach and we worship, but we're a people of prayer more than we're any of those other things. That said, for some people, it feels a little bit unusual to pray corporately or heaven forbid to get in groups and pray. Okay, I'm an introvert. I panic just like you do. Like that idea of gathering in groups, but that is important and we want to talk about why. Even using words like prayer, we have begun to use for uh, different meanings than they actually mean. And uh, this is the best way to illustrate that, is when somebody maybe grabs you in the foyer and said, hey, if you would, pray about, and they'll share something in your heart. If you're the person who goes, okay, let's pray right now, they go deer in the headlights. Well, didn't you want to pray about it? Well, actually, they were saying, let me pray about it, but it was their way of conveying information. They weren't really thinking anybody was actually going to pray. It was more of an announcement couched as a prayer request. We want to be people of prayer on the spot, in the moment, anywhere. One of the reasons we have divorced the idea of prayer from our everyday activity is because we don't see prayer 
and action as the same thing. We see those as separate things, and we see, oh, those are people who pray, but these are people who get things done. I was in, uh, in the car driving down road the other day, and I pulled up behind a, uh, a very firm believer in bumper stickers. How's that? You know, you know there are, people are divided pretty much into two camps, right? Non-bumper sticker people who you could not pay to put a bumper sticker in your car, and then bumper sticker people who will put, you know, stickers that even oppose each other on their car. They'll plaster the back of the car. And I pulled up behind a, a firm bumper sticker believer. And on their car was a sticker that said, thoughts and prayers. It was scratched out. And below that, it said, policy and action. What were they saying? They were saying, we've had enough of your thoughts and prayers. That doesn't get anything done. We actually want to see something happen. I propose to you that prayer actually does involve action. James 5.16 tells us that the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. That prayer actually involves action. And that is a part of our story. If you were here from the beginning, you know, we met online forever. We went into a 21-day fast, and during the course of that fast, this building opened up to us. We found a place to worship together and to gather together out of prayer. Great prayer has great power as it is working. While we were praying online, a lot of you know Jerry Capra. Jerry came and said, hey, will you pray for my, my friend Chris? He's, he's got COVID, he's on a ventilator, he's got a family, he's not doing well. We began to pray for Chris. I met Chris two weeks ago. As of right now, Chris is way healthier than I am. Great prayer has great power. There's action there. If the Bible is true, and it pains me to say it that way, because I think we would all say we believe it is true, then prayer is arguably the most productive use of our time. It's not the only use of our time. It's not all that we have to do. But it's probably where we shift things in realms that we can't do it any other way. Yet, corporate prayer, praying together with believers, has become uncommon rather than common. I would venture to say the bulk of the body of Christ has not been to a corporate prayer meeting in the last few years. We just don't do it. So I want to give you two lists, those of you that like lists and numbers, okay? I'm going to give you two lists of five things about corporate prayer. Five quick reasons why we are hesitant to pray together. Just talk about why that's hard. And then five reasons why we, we have to do it and we get to do it. First reason that we are hesitant to pray together corporately is because we misunderstand the idea of humility, all right? And we have a tendency to think that corporate prayer, praying with people, is something that has got to be a production or a little bit showy. It feels like grandstanding, or it feels like, oh, we, we don't want to do that. We want to be hidden when we pray. Years ago, I was in Boston with Lou Engel, and he had gathered a group of young people to fast and pray for 40 days. And every day, we would walk around Harvard, and we would pray that God would break in among the students of Harvard. We'd walk by the philosophy department building, etched in stone over the philosophy building. It says, who is man that thou art mindful of him, from, Psalm, from the book of Psalms. And we would walk through, and we would pray that God would break in on the intellectuals of Harvard. At near the end of the 40 days, Lou gets particularly inspired and calls an Esther fast. No food, no water. Whole different ballgame. Okay, I'm not advocating this. I'm just telling you, it's different. So three days, this group, no food, no water. And he says, on the end, we're going to march around Harvard Yard. 
and we're going to pray. So here we are. You ought to see, by this time there's 200 people. You ought to see 200 people who haven't had food or water in three days. It looks like a zombie march. All right? It's like they're just this. And as they're walking around Harvard, we're, we're kind of quietly praying, quietly praying. We gather at this building. We don't know what it is. In the middle of Harvard Yard. We gather around this building. And, and Lou says, we just want to, as we close this time out, just lift up a shout of victory. You ought to hear a 200 people who haven't had anything to eat or drink sound like. Ah, it sounded like William Wallace, you know. I mean, this Braveheart moment. And it sounded good, so we all did it again. And we did it a third time. Now, what had escaped us was, one, it was Sunday morning. Two, this building is called Memorial Hall. It's technically a church, and they do have services in that building on Sunday mornings. And about the third time we all raised this shout, the vicar of this church comes, comes racing out. And you remember, he's got a very dark suit on and a, a purple collar. It's very impressive looking. And uh, he came out. He's really not very happy. What are you doing? And Lou Engle's son, Samuel, at the time was like maybe 13. He steps up to the front, <laughs> like Tiny Tim in a Dickens you know, novel. We're having a prayer meeting, sir. And the guy was having none of it. He was just not very happy and said, we're trying to have church in here. Now, the icing on the cake was when we got back to the hotel, we're gathering our things, and we're getting ready to fly home. I, I grab a, the Harvard newspaper, and I realized that that morning in that church, Tony Campolo was preaching. And they listed his text. His text was Matthew 6, 5 and 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will, will see you. Now... One, Tony Campolo owns, owes us for the best illustration ever of a sermon. If he couldn't preach that passage after us doing that, that's his own fault. But there's this sense that real prayer is always done in private, and that corporate prayer can be a little bit of a cry for attention, and it's attention-seeking, and it's really more humble to pray by yourself. But that warning is not about corporate prayer. It's about audacity. It's about drawing attention to yourself. Because Jesus later in Luke 18, 11, talks about a Pharisee standing by himself, praying and saying, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men, extortion. And pray. He's like, no, humility or lack of humility is not about praying in groups or praying by yourself. And praying in silent or praying quietly by yourself is no more inherently humble than praying corporately. So we've got to get past this idea of, you know, I'm very humble, I'm going to pray by myself. That's not what he's talking about there. So one of the reasons people are, are, have a little anxiety around corporate prayer is they misunderstand the idea of humility. Second reason that people sometimes feel anxiety about praying together is they don't agree with the prayer that the other person is praying. You ever do that? Gather up, somebody goes off, and you're like, mm, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't... Sometimes it's content-driven. Sometimes they're praying for things that you're not in agreement with, but oftentimes it's actually stylistic. The way they're praying. It isn't what they're praying, it's the way they're praying. But it feels very different to you. I remember hearing a story of a guy who came to the Lord in a tent revival, and they asked two intercessors to come and pray for him, and one stands on one side and prays for him, one stands on the other, and they're both yelling in his ear. It was, of, it was of the church tradition where louder is better, you know. 
and one of them is praying very loudly, set him free, Jesus, set him free, set him free, and the other one's praying into the other ear, hold him tight, Jesus, hold him tight, hold him tight. He said, I didn't know what I was supposed to hope for. You know, it's like, which of these is supposed to be true? Sometimes when we pray with others, it sounds like there's a conflict, but honestly, mostly it's about style. You wouldn't say it that way. And they would say it that way. If the prayer is about content, have that discussion later. If it's about style, in the name of Jesus, get over it. I mean, you know, if we don't have grace for the fact that other people pray differently than we do, we are consumed with a lot of wrong things. There's a great line from a band that I like called Over the Rhine. And it says, we're all late bloomers when it comes to love. I would say we are all late bloomers when it comes to prayer. And we just need to be patient with one another. So we don't understand humility. Sometimes uh, we don't agree with the prayer that's being prayed. Another reason we don't like to pray together sometimes is we don't know what to say. You know, you gather up. Who's going to go first? You don't know if you should go first and get it over with or wait. And what if you, go, what if you wait and then the person that goes first has a really long, profound prayer. And then you're like, oh, I should have gone first. I should have set the bar low. You know, now I've got to match that prayer. And it just feels so awkward. If we don't know what to say, we're thinking too much of prayer as a performance, not a conversation. Try and make prayer as much of a non-production as you can. You're talking to a friend. Quit worrying about what others are saying any more than you worry about what your neighbor says when you're speaking to your family around your dinner table. Don't be afraid of what to say. Another reason we're hesitant is that we feel too vulnerable. To pray with people sometimes feels a little bit awkward if you don't know who they are. It's one of the reasons why God wants to build community. We, we have fallen for the idea that community was so we would feel better. Oh man, if we had community, I'm, just, I'm looking for community. No, no, you don't, you don't find community, you build community, and you build it in part so that we can pray together in a way that we couldn't otherwise. When we moved to Washington, D.C. in 05, we were there eight or nine months. And we went to work for Lou, for Lou Engle. And at that point, we really didn't know him. I mean, we knew him at a far. He'd been in our home one time. And then we loaded everything up and moved to Washington, D.C. We gathered at a little condo that's right behind the, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. There's an intercessor there named Dick Eastman who'd owned two condos. And uh, he lived there for years. He, not many years ago, went to be with the Lord. But for years, he lived on the main floor, and he had interns in the basement. And then above him li uh, lived the then senator for Kansas at the time, Sam Brownback. And they would have prayer meetings. And uh, some of our interns lived with him periodically. And you could live in Dick's condo for free, but you had to attend Dick's prayer meeting. And the problem was Dick's prayer meeting was at 5 a.m., and so it kind of cut down on the free visitors. You know, you really had to live there at Dick's. You really wanted to be there if you were there. We were all there with our interns that maybe second or third night. And I remember Lou and Therese taking Kelsey and I to the side and sitting us down and saying, hey, we're going to pray together a lot. And we're going to lead together a lot. So if we're going to pray with you, we want to make covenant with you. We want to make a, an agreement before the Lord with you. And that was language that we weren't really even that familiar with. They said, this is how it goes. If we make covenant together, we never speak ill of one another. We support one another. We settle our differences behind closed doors. We, we treat each other like family. And we sat down and we made that commitment to one another. To, we barely knew these people. But you know what? We have lived that out with them 
And we have prayed with them in a hundred different situations. When, when you feel, sometimes it's hard to pray with people because we have no sense of community. We don't, we don't want to be vulnerable before them. I'm telling you, one of the important reasons why I encourage you to look around this room and say, meet somebody, grab them. Hey, see what they're doing for dinner. Get together, connect off, off site somewhere, build community is because the day is going to come. You're going to need somebody to pray with. And you don't want that to be a stranger. It just is different when it's somebody you know. Last reason that we are hesitant to pray is just sometimes we feel unprepared. It's like getting to class and realizing there was a quiz you didn't know about. He's like, I didn't know there was going to be math. I didn't know there was going to be prayer, okay? 1 Corinthians 14.26 says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all these things be done for building up. As a church family... We are going to move past that feeling that corporate prayer is too hard because we are going to be prepared for it. We're going to understand that, hey, as a family, when we come together, we, we pray together. It doesn't mean everyone has to pray out loud, but we, we agree, and we, we do this as a church family. So understanding that it's a little bit different, and boy, I don't know if I've ever done that before. There's reasons why we feel that way, but there are five reasons why we get to do this and we want to do this. These are five reasons we've got to pray together corporately. How would you like to be a uh, snowmobile salesman in Boca Raton? Can you imagine? Like having the Articat dealership in Boca Raton? They're never going to use that device. Or a snowblower. They're, you're, like you're never going to sell those in Boca Raton. However, in Duluth, you could probably snell, sell snowblowers in July. Why? Because they know in Duluth they're going to need this. All right? Corporate prayer is our snowblower in Duluth. Even if you don't think you need it now, you're going to need it. And we're all going to need it soon. There is coming an age when we will govern the affairs of the earth in partnership with Jesus. And we will do it in part through prayer. Jesus has always thought of his body as a governmental body. When Jesus told Peter, on this rock I'll build my church, what we think and what we know as a church is not at all what the disciples would have thought of. I think the disciples would look at how we function here, even at the bridge, and go, huh, that's what you built on those instructions. I wouldn't have seen that coming. Because when Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, the word he used was not church. We've interpreted it that way. It was a local governmental word called ecclesia wasn't a religious word at all certainly not a pastoral one it meant the assembly of people convening in a public place of the council for the purpose of deliberation what he called the church he meant was a group of people who gathered made decisions and got things done they were a governing body Jesus saw his followers helping make decisions here on earth in preparation for the fullness of the kingdom when we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Now Jesus currently rules in heaven. How does he do it? He talks to the Father, he hears the will of the Father, and he executes the will of the Father. And then he invites us into that. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. What is Jesus doing in heaven? He's hosting a prayer meeting. Because that's how things get done. 
And this is not a short-term assignment that he invites us into. Jesus has bigger plans for your eternity than you do. One of the reasons we lose a generation of young people is we have painted the afterlife or what happens when Jesus returns as all of us sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Nobody even likes the harp. And we've pictured that as our ultimate experience with God. And we wonder why young people go, no, I'm checking out of that. That's not at all what the afterlife, I don't really like calling it the afterlife, it's the ultimate life. And that thousand years is a season where we reign with Jesus here on the earth. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, if we endure with Christ, we will reign with Christ. And we pray corporately because that is the manner in which we will rule the earth in the age to come. So why do we do it together? Why corporately? Because he is building us into a temple of living stones and we are incomplete our prayers are incomplete without the prayers of others. His ecclesia is a gathered body. It's not a lone ranger. He doesn't deputize you to rule and reign on your own. So one of the reasons that we've got to do this is because this is how we will govern in days to come. It's through prayer. It's not only how we will govern the earth, but the second reason we need to do this, and maybe short term, I wouldn't say it's more important, but it, it is as important. Through corporate prayer, we learn to govern ourselves. What is the base function of church government? All right, we're in the process of setting up bylaws and, and, and codifying things and making church government, and so we're thinking a lot about this right now. What's the base function of church government? It's a spiritual function, but it's not always a spiritual function you would think. The most basic purpose of church government is to anticipate what might hinder the gospel and then make sure it gets out of the way. It is to deal with problems or issues that come up along that we anticipate or that we step into and we correct. Some might think that it's spiritual oversight. There is a sense of spiritual oversight, but each person is responsible for their own spiritual walk with God. And so it's not like Church government is putting the stamp on, you know, saved, 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 oh, not saved. That's not the role of church government. The role of church government is to deal with crisis or to deal with difficulty so that the gospel can function in the way that it should. So what do they govern or what do they mitigate? Conflict. Either between competing priorities, we want to do this or we want to do that. Okay, that's conflict. Which should we do? Let's settle that. Or uh, governmental re requirements that are placed on us. Okay, well, in order to, to uh, be this sort of church, the government says we've got to file these papers, so, so we do that. Or most importantly, conflict between believers. And in some cases, they do things in advance to avoid the conflict. They put policies in place. They operate under best practices to avoid problems. But when problems arise, church government addresses them. Because conflict resolution in the kingdom is a spiritual act, the idea of church government dealing with conflict only works in an atmosphere of prayer. Outside of prayer, church government has no authority. It's just people in a room making decisions. You ever been misquoted by your kids? If you have kids, yes. Like, if they're talking, I promise you, at some point they've said, Dad said, and they say, you're like, Dad did not say that, or Dad said that, but he said a lot more. You know, there's this sense of, they take things out of context, and they run, and they talk to Mom and all that. 
Imagine how Jesus feels when periodically we take things out of context. Matthew 18, 19 and 20. He tells them this. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, people quote that in regards to everything. Praying for healing, praying for buildings, praying for whatever. Hey, two or three agree. All right, you know, and they pull it and they say, it says that. Here we are. Off we go to the races. And it's true, but it's not what he was talking about. He's speaking very specifically in that where two or three agree, what he is talking to them about to pray about. When he says where two or three are gathered, you need to look at the context of what he's talking about. And the context is walking people through conflict. It's dealing with people who are in disagreement. If you back up just a couple of verses, verse 15, it's the famous Matthew 18 passage that everybody quotes when there's a conflict. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. But if it does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to tell them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What he's speaking about there where he says wherever two or three agree, he's talking about walking people through conflict in a biblical way. And then he adds that passage where he says wherever two or three agree about and they ask in my name, it shall be done. The dumbest things blow up congregations. Like really the dumbest things. The reason there's jokes about churches splitting over the color of the new carpet is because churches actually split over the color of the new carpet. The reason church conflict goes from a firecracker to an atomic bomb, think about it, two groups of people, both presumably who love Jesus, and suddenly they're fighting. The reason things blow up is they try and walk out some sort of conflict resolution of verses 15 through 18 apart from verses 19 and 20. They try and exercise church government apart from corporate prayer. And so what they're doing is they're trying to do this without having prayed about it. You've got people having conflicting meetings and binding and loosing. And, you know, Jesus is standing off to the sideline going, if you'd ask me a question, I think I could help sort this out. Here you are trying to resolve a conflict apart from having talked to me about it. And you wonder why it didn't go well. Bridge family. We will pray together on the front end because in doing so, we will deal with our conflicts in a biblical way. And when we do it, we do it with the mind of Christ, not with some sort of self-preservation gene that kicks in when people try and get their way. We have got to pray because it's how we will govern the earth. It's also how we will govern ourselves. Third reason that we need to pray is it facilitates healing. Does Jesus need our participation to heal? No. He healed people all through the Bible entirely on his own. Sometimes people asked. Sometimes they didn't ask. Sometimes they were dead. Okay? He healed people on his own. However, he invited us into the process. And there are times that he directed the disciples to go and pray for the sick and, and do that sort of thing. James 5, 14 and 15 says, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. He's committed sins, and we forgive him. Can you imagine the first time they did that, and it worked? Like, 
You know they're thinking, is this going to work? I don't know. Let's just give it a shot. And they do it, and it works, and they come back, and they're, they're overwhelmed with the idea. They know good and well they didn't do that. But somehow Jesus did it through them. Praying corporately for people facilitates healing in a way that may never happen any other way. In addition to healing, praying corporately for the sick does a couple of things among us. First of all, it encourages those who feel alone. Those of you that have been sick, that have found out people are praying for you, it does something for your heart that's hard to imagine. The last two years for most of you have been the most isolating time of your life. Because you have been cut off from loved ones, you've been cut off from work situations, and to know that you have a church family that is praying for you, I mean, we believe for healing, but honestly, even if you're not healed, it touches your heart. It facilitates healing at that level. It also touches the heart of the father. Every father's heart is moved when he sees his children cooperate with one another. Trust me, I can know this very well. When you see your kids working together, it's like, oh, it's the realization of a dream. 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, that you may be complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. To be in the same mind about something, to agree in prayer about something, is the realization of a dream of the heart of the Father. God looks at us and goes, I have dreamed for this day. That they would come together and they would agree around something. We have the potential to fulfill the dream of God's heart when we pray together. So it encourages us when we feel alone. It touches the heart of the Father, and it builds the faith of the body. When we pray in isolation, even when we get victory in isolation, it's still in isolation. But when we get victory corporately, and we've been praying about something together, and we see a breakthrough, it builds the heart of the entire body. So we pray together corporately. Because it's how we'll govern in eternity. It's how we govern ourselves. It facilitates healing. Fourth, it is the prescription for indecision. Praying together helps us have clarity on what we do next. Indecision is dangerous for people who have responsibilities. Maybe when you were a kid, it wasn't that big a deal. Okay? If you need a picture of indecision... Get in the van with me afterwards. We'll take my kids to Sonic. A drive-through window is the bane of my existence. Okay? Because it does not matter what they agreed to before you got in the line. When you get to the window, everything changes. And that one wants this and that one. It's a, Kelsey will tell you, I, like, I will nearly manifest an evil spirit. Like, I get really cranky at the... It just makes me nuts. But they're kids, okay? It's, it's not that... Okay, so we sat at the window 17 minutes with eight cars behind us. You know, uh, that, that's good. It teaches them patience. But indecision as a kid is not that big a deal. Indecision as an adult is dangerous. When you've got responsibilities and you can't make a decision, things happen. There's a video clip on YouTube of a woman leaving the Dallas-Fort Worth uh, airport parking area. And there's like five or six different places where she can go to pay her ticket, you know. And, and, and uh, I don't exactly know what happened. But she approached it way too fast. And rather than to take one of the gates and go through that, 
she hit the embutment that separates the gates and launches her car over two toll booths and into the outer parking lot where it bursts into flame and spectacular. It's, like, it's remarkable YouTube footage. It really is. You do not want to live a life destined to be fantastic YouTube footage. You do, that's what indecision does to us. Do I go right? Do I go left? I don't know. And I don't do anything. And, you know, and things, bad things happen. Praying together moves us beyond indecision. The Lord begins to speak to us. And in times of great turmoil, in times of great indecision, corporate prayer gets us through that and beyond it as he begins to speak to us as a body. Indecision in the life of an individual or a church family is crippling. And those who walk by the Spirit are not destined for indecision. It's not the way he designed us to be. There is a season in the life of the followers of Jesus in the Bible where it was not clear what they were supposed to do next. We look back at the disciples' lives and we are so smart. How couldn't they understand? You know, we got like 30 other books of the Bible that have been added since then that we take into context. They didn't have any of these things. And so there were times in the early part of the church they just didn't know what to do. I want to review the heavenly security footage of this passage in the book of Acts because we can only imagine what they are thinking in Acts 1 as Jesus, who, was, who they thought were gonna, was going to host a military coup, dies, raises again. They wander out to a hillside where he goes up into the clouds. Like, nobody saw this coming. And as he goes up, they say, he'll come back this way, but they don't tell him when. What do they talk about as they walk back to the house? It's like, didn't see that coming. Now what do we do? What do they do in that season of indecision? Acts 1, 12 to 14. And when they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olive, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All of these were in one accord and devo devoted themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They, ha they were indecisive. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know which way to turn. They said, we, we really need to pray. If we pray, he will answer. They turned one of the most questionable moments of their life into a prayer meeting. Let me encourage you, before you act out of indecision or do something because you feel like you have to do something, gather people together and pray. The very genesis of the bridge was a season where we just sat around and said, we don't know what we're going to do next. We are indecisive. Will you pray with us? That's how we got this. Prayer comes against that indecision. The bridge exists because of prayer meetings like that. Corporate prayer is how we learn how to govern in eternity. It's how we learn to govern ourselves. It facilitates healing. It addresses indecision. And finally... Corporate prayer is the way of the future. I had a profound thought the other day. You may not think it's profound, but it was to me. Okay? The future's forward. It doesn't sound that profound. But given that the future is forward, we spend a lot of time thinking about the present and the past. Like, we spend a lot of time. I've had to learn how to discipline myself. The future's forward. I got to think, think about where things are going, not even not where they've been, and not even where they are right now. For 
People to understand that the future is forward. We spend a lot of time thinking about what happened in the past. But the way of the future is a church that prays together. Right now, there are more ways to do church than there have ever been in our lives. And they're not bad. There's megachurch, everybody in one spot. There's multi-site. There is house church. There's microchurch. There is, you know, I pastored a microchurch once. <laughs> we weren't trying to make it a microchurch. It just turned out that way. But, you know, there's a million different ways of, of function and how it... And the Lord can actually be glorified in all of those. But ultimately where it's going is a church that prays however they meet. Isaiah led a remarkable life. And he understood the future as forward. Most of what he wrote involved the far future. Had a unique window into the future. We can learn what is happening by going back and reading what was written 700 years before Christ. We'll talk about it a little bit more next week as we lean into the Christmas season. But he doesn't get into models of church, but he describes the activity leading up to the return of the Messiah to earth. And he says this in Isaiah 42, verses 10 through 13. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea, all that fills it, the coastlines and their inhabitants, let the desert and the cities lift up their voices. The villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. He, what he's talking about here is a group of people, a church of the future that worships and prays corporately. That engages the Lord together, that lifts their voice to God. What happens then? The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty to his foes. He says Jesus returns to find a church that is engaged in corporate prayer and worship. And we're asking, is it a microchurch? Is it a megachurch? Is it meeting in a dance studio? Isaiah says, I didn't even thought about that stuff. Don't even care. It's a church that prays together. That is what captures the Lord's heart and causes him to return. I want to ask if our worship leader would return for a moment. We have cut short this morning for a reason. It is because I am just convinced enough about the idea of corporate prayer that I am not content to just preach about it. Like, I can't do that. And I am... I am so compelled that the bridge is a prayer meeting that has added worship and added teaching to it that I don't want to get away from our roots. It's who we are. It's, it's who we're going to be. Going forward, the Sunday meeting will not be the hub of activity. Going forward, it's, it's a prayer context. But we will never get there if we don't practice. Nobody finds themselves suddenly praying with people without disciplining ourselves to do it. So, this is what we're going to do, okay? I want to invite you into this. He's just going to play behind us a little bit, give us some music, nothing magical about it. Actually, it calms our nerves. It really does. It makes us settle a little bit in our hearts. But we're going to stand. Let's just do that now. Let's all stand. Okay. And I want to ask you, not just, not just encourage you, ask you. Now, if you really don't want to do this, 
you get a pass. But I'm going to encourage you to try it. Find somebody you did not come with, okay? Maybe, maybe you're, you and your spouse go together to somebody, but make sure there's somebody in your group that you did not come here with. And let's take a few minutes and let's pray together. Like, oh, doggone it, I know it was going to come to this. Yeah, the whole thing is going this direction. This is where the church is going. So we're going to do a little clinic. We're going to pray together. These are your assignments, okay? We want to pray for families that have been affected with the storms. We want to pray for the Lord's direction for the bridge. And then if there are any needs in your group, let's take about 10 minutes and do this. Are we only ever going to do 10-minute prayer meetings? Nowhere to do longer, but we're going to do a 10-minute one this morning. Take a minute, find somebody to pray with. Father, I pray you would bless these people and bless this time.